0: At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally-enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal.
2: Over the next year, I think we'll see a lot more evolution and implementation of the executive order requirements. And I, and, but it won't be overnight. I think what we'll see in the next year is more uh, RFPs, more uh, proposals coming out, uh, and contracts being left to help the government meet those requirements. So I think this year will be a year of, of uh, trying to gather the resources to, uh, to make good on that executive order.
0: Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. In the wake of high visibility cybersecurity incidents over the past few years, which Solar SolarWinds, Log4j, and the 2021 Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, the U.S. government has issued directives and guidance to address cybersecurity across the digital ecosystem and lifecycle. The White House and federal agencies have leaned forward to advance the cybersecurity posture of government and industry alike while keeping our most critical infrastructure secure, resilient, and operational. Across multiple administrations, Congress has passed legislation and funding for key cybersecurity programs and capabilities. Industry continues to invest and advance cybersecurity tools and mitigation measures. These steps signal a maturing collective national cyber defense and underscore the need for continued industry-government collaboration. And my guests today are gonna help us understand where we are currently on that cybersecurity evolution and perhaps what it will take to get us to a stronger cyber posture and realization of the recent executive order. Bruce Matthews and Kynan Carver are senior cybersecurity leaders at Maximus that focus on the Department of Homeland Security and Department of Defense respectively. And I'm really looking forward to taking a deeper dive with them to learn more on this topic because it impacts each of us really both professionally and personally. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Brian, for having me
0: on. Yeah, so Bruce, I, I wanna start with you a little bit. Um, if you could give give the listeners uh, a little bit of background on your experience. I know both you and Kainen come from government, so you have that experience. I know you more recently with the US Department of State, but tell us a little bit about your background in government and where your cyber focus has been?
2: Yeah, thank you. It's um, it's kind of an unusual career path that I took. I started off as a security engineering officer at the Department of State, and uh, and that in itself is a neat career because you're looking for uh, you know, ways to prevent people from stealing uh, information, whether it's through eavesdropping devices or cyber, or um, or you know, just breaking and in and stealing things. So very uh, very interesting uh, uh job. Uh, worked my way up through that, through uh, eventually through uh, management and then senior uh, management. I served in, uh, uh, in places in, uh, in Africa, uh, Russia, uh, England. I was actually the first uh, exchange officer, technical exchange officer, to work with the British from the State Department. And where I did uh, countermeasures and cybersecurity work. Uh, for the British government and, and exchange of ideas and really foster a relationship there on how we can both uh, work together with the rest of the Five Eyes. We have programs
0: on other Five Eyes countries to uh, share information and best practices, if you will. That's interesting. So but before, kind of before I get over to you, Bruce, you, you mentioned you were in Russia. If you're focused on cybersecurity in Russia, how difficult of a role was that? You're in their backyard. Yeah. <laughs> so right. it's, uh, it's really the, uh,
2: difficult and uh, And the most vulnerable, if you will, in terms of uh, uh, they have they control the environment around you. So um, it was a very interesting uh, uh, time as well, because right then was when the the wall was coming down. So uh, a lot of things going on, a lot of uh, things to sort out in terms of uh, what was going to happen in the future, What did the threats look like in the future, and what what we had to deal with at the time. So um, it's really, you know, the big leagues, if you will.
0: very interesting. and. Kind of want to come over to you. So obviously um, you're at Maximus now, but you you have government experience as well, most recently over at uh, over at DISA. Tell me a little bit about your, your role there and kind of what you were focused on.
1: Yeah. Um, so I led the development of cybersecurity requirements for DISA on several different uh, DISA agencies. One in particular, one is the DOS program that's in charge of the il 6 accreditation for O365. Um, additionally, I've, I've worked as – actually, I've had many roles within DISA, one of which was the operations and service delivery on another DISA program as a government lead. And then lastly, I worked as the deputy cyber chief for another DISA program, uh, managing the SOC and some other information assurance processes to include cloud in multiple on-premise instances.
0: Um, Bruce, I want to come back over to you now. I think a lot of the listeners know um, in May of last year, the federal government, uh, they issued a pretty important executive order, right? To improve cybersecurity across agencies. And I'm curious to know as a federal contractor that, and you're working with several different agencies within DHS, what are you seeing and, and how, is, how have you seen the impact of this order really take shape? How is it progressing?
2: You know, Maximus works across several DHS agencies. Um, for example, we operate a, you know, 24-7 uh, op- security operations center for one DHS agency. And we have developers creating advanced detection analytics, as well as uh, AI and ML solutions. And, uh, you know, so from from that vantage point, you know, we see the growing number and changing uh, uh, nature of cyber threats. and from what we see from that advantage point, uh, the agencies we work with are indeed taking it seriously. You know, one of the, uh, the key sections of that uh, executive order is modernizing federal government cybersecurity. It, um, you know, it calls for uh, uh, improved cloud movement to secure cloud services, uh, centralized uh, access to cybersecurity data, uh, et cetera. And so, what we've seen uh, in response to that is calls for, for a proactive approach with zero trust architecture, multi factor authentication, and um, for example, we did one project where uh, we it required IT modernization, migration of the cloud, and uh, implementing DevSecOps. We've seen CISA uh, make a huge investment in hiring personnel, and at least one agency, um, you know, we've seen realignment of offices and responsibilities uh to make you know better respond to those requirements. And you know, of course, those aren't easy tasks. The agencies are, you know, of course turning to contract support, which isn't really anything new in itself. But we see more and more, like say, zero trust requirements and RFIs and RFPs. You know, the agencies are actively assessing those offers approaches um, to those to those uh, zero trust solutions. And uh you know, we we've assisted in those efforts in our in our contracts. Another thing that we're seeing across there, uh, you know, is that the supply chain issues are being, uh, addressed uh, largely, you know, in the wake of the log four J now log four J you know, that's not new in terms of, um, a supply chain attack, you know, we've had ripple 20 a couple of years ago and other types of attacks, but this one woke everybody up and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in accordance with that, uh, executive order, we've seen this come out with, um. A definition for uh, the uh, critical software, and while that definition um, is pretty set, there's still a long way to go in that. In terms of, uh, you know what are those elements of s- software bill of materials that are uh, need to be uh, uh, enshrined? Uh, they have, uh, you know, released some of those elements in, uh, in a July 2021 uh, paper, and there's been progress. Uh, um toward that but supply chain security guidance that's that's going to evolve that's going to take time i think because when you look at just just even a a piece of software under development like uh, log4j uh, if it's if it's open if it's open source software um you know there could be dozens and dozens of branches for any given version so you know trying to track that and categorize that and really understand um what you have in your ecosystem that yeah you know, that's going to take time to to, to figure out uh, but it's it's absolutely needed if people are going to respond quickly we've also seen uh, compliance toward uh, multi-factor th- authentication and something recently that was done in uh, november just this past uh, november CISA uh, released the federal government cyber incident and vulnerability response playbooks and that's kind of a neat document it has a you know, the set of procedures and all the the things that agencies can do. So it gives them some guidance for once. So we're excited about that. Uh, Those are um, some of the key things we've observed uh, going across and uh, coming out from the agencies really responding to that.
0: I think one of the big challenges anytime there's an executive order released is the focus around implementation. One of the things I've, I've talked about even on this podcast was, technology and things that moved pretty agilely throughout the pandemic had the luxury of um, scale and implementation quickly. Driving adoption was pretty easy because you just had to adopt it. Um, but obviously we're coming out of that and cybersecurity is a completely different animal than some of the other things that we focused on like, like customer experience, et cetera. So kind. I wanna come over to you. Um, it, within working across uh, Department of Defense, What are some of the barriers that you've seen around implementation, especially uh, specific to this executive order?
1: So Maximus is excited about the executive order. And then more recently, the DoD's release of the Zero Trust strategy and roadmap. Because it provides the guidance that we need to help shape our customers within the DoD, shape their priorities going forward. Uh, That being said, some of the barriers that I, I think you'll end up being um, seeing are one is the cultural adoption of zero trust, and I mean that the way that zero trust works is it's putting security. Well, it's the the concept that the enemies are inside your infrastructure or your enterprise, and that's a significant change to how we used to think about uh, cybersecurity, where it was more perimeter boundary that we're preventing um, the adversary from breaching into our our enterprise itself from the outside. So that cultural shift of just recognizing that the enemy is already inside or the threat's already inside the the organization is is a significant change to how we perceive cybersecurity and that zero trust architecture starts to answer, how do you resolve that? A second one is funding. Um, Because of the, the need to be compliant by 2027, Um, funding is going to be a major concern for a lot of these agencies. Um, I I believe Maximus can support that by doing some of the analysis up front to figure out where that organization is from a maturation level, meaning how that organization is in the process of adopting a zero-trust architecture. And through that, we can help the customer shape how they're going to do the acquisition package um, to request uh, additional funding to make them compliant by 2027. Uh, A third item or a third barrier is the governance and oversight. I look forward to the CIO developing the governance and oversight because that will impact how um, the government is going or the DOD writ large is going to to essentially grade and mature the zero trust architecture in the future. Um, Additionally, I'm looking forward to the reference architecture that the DOD is going to release and that will help the program Uh, individually or the agency at large look at something on paper for essentially a successful um, architecture or more than a roadmap, but something that will call out at each phase what technologies or processes they need to implement. Uh, And then lastly, again, I I already talked about it, but it's the need to be compliant by 2027. I believe that is a barrier in itself in the sense that that's going to put a lot of pressure on the individual agencies and programs to be compliant.
0: One of the things that people have talked about a lot, and you mentioned, it's a combination of things, right? It's not just about the technology, but it's, it's about enablement. It's about cyber hygiene. It's about a, a lot of different factors that are kind of integrated. Um, CMMC is something that has become a, a buzz acronym, if you want to call it that, across DOD. I think there's once they kind of straighten all that out and, and they implement it, it could have a factor within um, even federal civilian. But I'm curious to know, what are you seeing kind of within the DOD around that uh, that CMMC, the cybersecurity maturity model certification? Is that something that you think is going to be implemented soon? Is that something that you think is is farther out? And do you think it's really going to have the impact perhaps that the DOD is hoping it will?
1: So the CNC program um, essentially is the is the need for the defense industry base to be compliant or be cyber secure, right? So there's been, with the release of 2.0, that's been broken down into three categories. Where I see some of the impacts to the defense agency is really more of the small business because there's a lot of um, documentation, paperwork, and assessments that need to be done in order to achieve certain levels. It's, level one, obviously you can do the self-assessment, but as you get into the levels two and three, that's when you start bringing in some of the additional outside assessments. Um, and like I said, small businesses at that point are kind of not necessarily staffed to handle that level of, of paperwork that's required for the CMCC or CMC 2.0.
0: Bruce, I want to come back over to you. Um, you mentioned Russia at the top of the show. One of the things that that stuck in my head, I remember. Um, I think it was a maybe two years ago. There were some issues around a cybersecurity attack of um, some of our some of our petroleum pipelines, um, and it made me think. I think it made a lot of people think about the the vulnerability that we have as a country um, from some of these attacks, right? Especially to our critical infrastructure and. Um, the reason why I want to ask you this, I know D- DHS has responsibility for, for a lot of things from aviation to mass transit, rails, pipelines, ports. Um, that attack surface is not small, right? And I think that that recent attack that we saw a few years ago, I think, showed that maybe we're not quite ready and we need to kind of bolster some of those areas. I'm curious to know. What is Maximus doing right now to secure some of these systems from cyber attacks to help make sure some of the issues that happened before um, won't happen again?
2: Yeah, it's a big lift for DHS. I mean, it's, you know, the Homeland security, if you will, and all those things involve not just cyber, but also the human aspect as well, Uh, you know, from terrorists. And so there's, you know, lots of threats, not just cyber going on for uh, all those efforts. And uh, Maximus, on our, on our part of that, uh, for one example of things we do is run a security operations center for an agency, uh, which you know provides a situational awareness of incidents. And and more importantly on that is that we also have a robust cyber threat intelligence that's synchronized with the SOC. And, and in that um, effort, the cyber threat intelligence is often sort of overlooked, I think, in terms of how important it is to work with a SOC you know, and really do you need to, to provide a robust structure for that? You know, we have a, um, intelligence process that starts off with the priority intelligence requirements and defining those, uh, you know, what is it you're trying to collect or understand about your, your situation? What is the information that you need? And that has to link back to what are the goals of your security effort? And in, in terms of what are you trying to prevent? And for example, you know, um, it might be not a cyber event at the end goal of the bad guy. It could be a, a kinetic event, or, or getting someone into the country undetected, or uh, you know, taking out a facility. But that might need cyber to help enable it. And so it could be the data as a target, as well as the uh, something else. It could be just an, uh, a facilitator for another type of attack. So that uh, cyber threat intelligence effort um, needs to have you know good planning and direction. Understanding what your requirements are, gathering that information, understanding where the gaps are, and also making sure the SOC understands what to do with that information. And and so we work very closely and we have, I think, a good program synchronizing that with the SOC so that when we publish our intelligence reports and transfer that information to them and to to the other um, stakeholders, they have an idea of what to do with it. And then there's feedback, you know, what is what have they learned the SOC to, to hand back to the cyber team? The intelligence team to uh, refine their own efforts. The uh, another thing that's really important is scalability. So when, when we look at our uh, our, our efforts at uh, at the um, at the agency, we we've done a, a lot to ingest volumes and volumes of data. You know, um, it's uh, we've of structured. I don't want to say customized it, but we've you know adapted the the data. So we're, you know, ingesting, you know, multiple terabytes of data a day and, and billions of d- events a month, really, to make sure that we're collecting all the information we need to. And that requires, uh, you know, a, a, a system that's scalable, and particularly with the growing number of endpoints over 50,000 endpoints. That's a, a lot of information to handle. And so automation all, all also becomes a key at that point, we need to make sure that data is normalized, it can work across uh, the, the different uh the, the feeds the source feeds and uh and really it's also that user experience we make sure that the user of all that data can can
0: readily access it and make it work i'm glad you brought up automation and i know uh, that kind of coupled with artificial intelligence has been a way that government has focused on mitigation tactics across these i think there's just there's just so many attacks happening on a, on a minute by minute hour, hour day by day basis that you you need that type of automation you need that type of, of technology support to be able to mitigate these things. Um, so I think that's one that's one way that government has really advanced um, but I know you mentioned you mentioned data and these threat reports. Um, obviously the AI is learning from certain things I'm curious to you know from your time especially in government, how are you seeing agencies, and the private sector share across some of this information that they're learning, right? A company like Maximus, and you're, you're working with so many different agencies, you're certainly learning a lot about some of these attacks and ways to mitigate them. How are you sharing that information and how how is that bolstering, if you want to call it that, that ecosystem of cyber defense that the US is setting up?
2: Yeah, I think there's a a lot better sharing than there used to be. Um, I think everyone recognizes now the need to share. Um, There's a lot of effort going into making data uh, shareable. And so, um, uh, and even like if you look at, say, CISA and their new uh, JCDC, Joint Cyber um, Defense Collaboration, they uh, um, there's a whole section devoted to trying to work with stakeholders out there in in the private sector and industry. Uh, government, state, and local, as well as uh, federal and even international partners on how we can better share data, how we can automate that data sharing, how they can um, help use that data to plan for a better defense. So you see a, a huge effort by CISA in that regard uh, and, and the JCDC office. Uh, and and you kind of think of that sort of like the... the um, you know, kind of joint chiefs of staff. You know, you can't can't fight a war without the navy cooperating and communicating with the army and the air force, et etc. So uh, Jen Easterly, the new director of uh, CISA, she, you know, she pointed out that if we're going to have a robust cyber defense, we need industry communicating with government and uh, vice versa, and state and local. So we see a lot more efforts now in that data sharing and efforts to try and automate that data sharing. But I think um, the the we, we don't do enough in terms of automation i think from a if you kind of move up to a, a higher level and think this sort of a national security perspective i think that automation really I'll use the phrase it needs to become pervasive it just needs to be pervasive automation everything we can automate we should be doing so and and focusing on that because part of the problem i see is that um, well one from that bigger standpoint that's sort of the strategic level basically that the workforce is getting older and aging out. You know, simple fact. We know that there's not as many human resources out there to do the jobs for any industry. It's not just cybersecurity industry, it's for across the board. So, you know, we all tend to, you know, fish from the same swimming pool. There's limited resources out there. And so automation has to become key and uh, has to be just really pervasive throughout everything we do because all the cybersecurity, even if you have an automated, uh, 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 what they call a SOAR, or, uh, you know, Automation and Orchestration uh, and Reporting uh, uh, Software. That's just still a, only a piece of it. It helps look at the data, helps the, uh, the analysts uh, sort through what they're seeing, but every step they need to be looking at, can we automate that somehow? All the paperwork that we pr- process afterwards, can we automate that somehow? And so I think that's where we really need to think of it, more like, a, you know, look at the big uh, tech companies. They wouldn't be big tech companies if they didn't automate a lot of their systems internally, such as, uh, you know, Amazon's and the delivery services. So I think we need to take that from a government perspective, really that same mindset that if we can automate it, we should be uh,
0: trying to do that. Makes a lot of sense. Um, And when I think about some of those features, one of the things that I think about is the the need to shift to the cloud. Again, I, I mentioned the pandemic earlier, I think government agencies, across Fed, civilian, as well as the DoD, um, made a very intentional push into the cloud. Uh, and I'm curious to know, with the security features that we're seeing um, within the cloud, the different uh, security postures that have changed, do you think that shift to the cloud will really help address some of these cyber threats, or is is a more traditional way um, the, the best path forward?
1: So that's an interesting
0: question. Um, it actually, it's
1: one of, one of the things that an com- organization has to consider is what are they trying to achieve? Um, I believe the cloud, by the nature of how it has to go through the accreditation process, has to maintain a, a pretty relevant cybersecurity posture. So if you go to the cloud uh, providers, they're going to inherently have more security. That being said, um, it's really a, a case-by-case basis. Um, there, You may have a mission set that doesn't necessarily al- align to a full cloud adoption, where you have to be kind of this hybrid, or if you're are really on the extreme end where you can't adopt a cloud, then clearly you have to stay on-prem. But I guess, in summation, it's going to that cloud provider, again, has a lot of the underpinnings for like a zero-trust architecture in place that you can relatively adopt or consume.
0: Bruce brought up a, a really good point around the the need, obviously, for technology, but he also the the conversation around workforce issues around cybersecurity. I think if you if you looked at a um a deficiency within this area, it would probably be just the lack of, I mean, you can call it talent, but not not talent in that way. It's the lack of people to be able to do this. And it, the need is so massive. I think I, I remember a couple of years ago. Um, they said that it was, there were like 2.3 million cybersecurity roles open just because they couldn't be filled. And that alone, and, and that's globally, that alone certainly speaks to national security risk, not only within the U.S., but in global governments. Um, how how are you seeing the Department of Defense address these workforce issues to get people in place? Is it, is it really a hunt for talent? Is there a reskilling effort going on? What are you seeing, kind of? Great question. Um,
1: I know that in the DOD at large is looking at, so I should break this down. The DOD is broken down obviously into three categories. You have your military, your uh, civilians, and then you have your contractors. Um, in regards to the military, uh, they're taking, I wouldn't say a slower approach, but it's definitely taking more time for them to to push out cyber or develop cybersecurity talent um, and to attract cybersecurity talent because of their general mission set. So, and the way that the DOD has handled that is trying to design specific programs um, that attract that talent and develop it. Uh, one in particular is the the army uh, officer program um, that is, I think, fairly advanced and is attractive to a lot of people. Um, but in regards to the civilian agency, uh, it's, again, it's another challenge, but it's kind of attracting those those high talent workers from industry so where i find some of the gaps within the dod civilian side is actually more accounts to pay right i think they they need to look at their pay structure and how they're going to attract talent uh, from industry into the civilian side um, a good reference on that is actually scissors in the state department's uh, pay model and incentive model, and I think they're getting some significant strides in getting that talent into those spaces. And then, lastly, um, from a contractor perspective, yeah, the war on talent is huge. Um, as each company is trying to fight with that fight for that talent, um, I think you're you're starting to see companies like Maximus become more innovative and more attractive by offering. Additional things, or you know, centering on certain contracts to be more appealing to to those individuals.
0: So, Bruce, I want to come back over to you. Um, You mentioned data earlier. I know, obviously, data has been a large focus within uh, the the use of data has been a large focus within the DoD as well as Fed civilian and and across the private sector. Obviously, I think we're looking at it, and there's so much um, there's so much can be gained by being able to assimilate and leverage data, but it also again opens up the attack vectors, right? If your data isn't stored and managed properly. what what is needed to be able to protect this? Are there extra steps beyond I mean, you've talked about zero trust. Um, are there extra steps that that need to be addressed um within this or or how do you see how do you see the type of posture an agency should take? Um, I guess what what are best practices? Maybe is the best way to put it. I'll start
2: off with the. I heard long ago from uh, uh, on the hacking community that best practices just means we all fail the same way, right? <laughs> so, uh, um, but there are our best practices, uh, largely in, in that data cleansing and having a good robust data framework. Um, I think one of the things that hamper agencies um, is just the, the huge variety of data sources that they have coming in and each with their own particulars and how to manage that and how to get them into what they you know the, the everyone keeps talking about that single pane of glass a single window to look at it all which um you know that's that's not an easy thing to do because every pane of glass has a different purpose or the user has a different purpose you know, depending on what your your role is but i think um, having data normalization a good data cleansing process and really trying to understand what those uh, analysts need from that data so we can make the best uh, normalization of that data uh, the and then just scalability, you know moving you know moving to the cloud, but also the scalability of um, expanding where you need to that in itself is a challenge because the other thing is that these systems are running, right? And so when you try to change the underlying structure of it or add on to it, there's a uh, you know, uh, you have to do things carefully so you don't break what you already have going on and uh, while you while you come up with something new. And the transferring from things from on-prem to uh, the cloud, you know, that's not always any, uh, the best avenue for some, maybe say, uh, legacy analytics that don't work well in the cloud. So a, a hybrid solution works better there. Um, and then again, knowing what that data is telling you, I think there's Uh, A lot of effort trying to understand that by the analysts, but I'll kind of go back to our our cyber threat intel and the uh, relationship with the red teams, blue teams and the socks to um, really understand what is the business processes that are at risk? What does a bad guy want from that data? Um, The target for the bad guy is not always what we think the value of the data is because it depends on their ultimate goal. What are they trying to achieve with obtaining that data? Uh, that's at risk, so uh, so that, that kind of information needs to be factored into the uh, to the um, to the analyst as well, and so that takes understanding the business processes of the agency or the particular system under this being protected. Um, I think uh, uh, understanding what to to, to um, you know how to use that uh, information because like you get the MITRE ATT&CK framework. It's a great system and a lot of add-ons to it. It's evolving, it's uh, wonderful, but SOC analysts often don't know what to do with it. If, uh, if a team says, here's your MITRE ATT&CK framework, um, there's still not recognition of how to actually apply that in a SOC at times. And so uh, good workforce training to understand how to deal with um, those types of inf- that type of information and the threat information and how to integrate that into your SOC activities and at one agency that we run the SOC, we have a very robust program for training uh, the SOC uh, analysts that's uh, sort of automated, helps them guide them through a, a process if they haven't seen it before, or, or the types of data or attack if they haven't seen it before. So, it's, um, so instead of having to go look at a book or look on the web, you know, it'll help guide them through how to deal with it if it's something that they haven't experienced before. So I think uh, training is very important also to to improve the the value of the data that we get.
0: So as we're as we're kind of winding this conversation down, I want to give you guys a chance to um, help me understand what what your vision is. I think obviously for for federal civilian within DHS and also DoD. I think Maximus I know has a has a very specific focus around uh, the incorporation of cybersecurity data management you've talked about training and enablement there's so many different factors but um kind of I want to start with you when you look across the department of defense what is your hope what is your vision for this for this organization from a cybersecurity perspective
1: so maximus has looked at the cybersecurity field and we've we've taken the approach from a reactive to a proactive meaning traditionally you know i would say that um organizations are more reactive to cyber threats. And so Maximus is proposing, much like following the uh, zero trust model, we want to shift the, our customers to a proactive. So they're looking for um, threat vectors at the data layer opposed to, you know, at the extremity or the endpoint layers. And so that's really where Maximus is putting a lot of its time and it's, resources and trying to cultivate the, the, that cultural change and that shift in, in market
0: industry. And Bruce, over to you. I mean, within the Fed-Civ, uh space, especially within Department of Homeland Security, um, what, is your, what is your vision for the organization? I can imagine that shifting from that reactive to proactive posture is also important regardless of, of the agency you're working for. And, and that's part of that vision. But what is your, what is your hope in terms of that posture?
2: My hope there is that it is more automated, more fluid, uh, more seamless, if you will. And to do that requires a lot of innovation. And so for the government, we need to make sure that innovation isn't something to be feared. And uh, a lot of people say they want the innovation, but there's a fear of failure. If it doesn't work quite right the first time, there's a tendency not to go back to that well. But if you look at, uh, again, innovation in general, it's about a process. Of failure and 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 finding out what works, and uh, and so as they as they invoke uh, sort of agile processes, which is also really focusing on not the finding the fault of something not working right, but how do we solve it? How do we fix it? How do we fix it quickly? And get the blockers out of the way so we can keep moving, and I think that's where we need to be, and um, and really get to where everyone's working on on data that. And and having a really a cohesive effort across the government on what we do with the information that we have to make sure that that no one's left out uh, in the cold when when there is an attack, or that uh, I, I worry about the critical infrastructure a lot, and so I think that's where I would like to see my vision would be to help us communicate better with the the private sector and the critical infrastructure uh, stakeholders to. Uh, to really understand what they need from the government, so they can, uh, so we can provide it to them and help the government provide it to them, because I think that's where you know they're 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 on the ground on the ground floor. You know they're out there uh, under attack, and not just the government under attack, and and that's where our critical infrastructure is at risk. And so we really need to know what we can provide them, which means their participation back as well. They need to be willing to tell the government. What they need and what uh, they can use in terms of information from the government, and uh, and try to help the government
0: to facilitate that. Last question I have for you guys, and I'll, Bruce, I'll, I'll start with you. What's a prediction you have for the next year within this space? What, what do you think? What do you think could happen? Will happen? Should happen? Uh, any type of prediction within this uh, within this government cybersecurity space?
2: Over the next year, I think we'll see a lot more evolution. And implementation of the executive order requirements, and and but it won't be overnight. I think what we'll see in the next year is more uh, RFPs, more uh, proposals coming out, uh, and contracts being let to help the government meet those requirements. So I think this year will be a year of of uh, trying to gather the resources
0: to uh, to make good on that executive order. Excellent, and and Kynan. For you, a prediction within within the Department of Defense, same same kind of idea. What do you see potentially happening within this space?
1: Yeah, with Honorable Sherman's requirement to get uh, zero trust across the DoD writ large by 2027, um, you're going to see a lot of organizations pushing, putting out contracts to start answering that that requirement. Uh, additionally, uh, you know, I look forward to. The CIOs' um, governance and oversight strategies. Uh, We're in within, within Zero Trust. Will help that. Will also help shape some of what these acquisitions are going to be in the future. So that's what I'm excited about. Um, looking forward to next year,
0: gentlemen. Thanks so much for the time today. I think we we covered a lot, and really, really appreciate you being able to give us some insights on where we are with the executive order evolution, as well as what it's going to take to get to where we need to be. Um, So again, thank you for for the time today. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.